Morning, Missio. I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-11. through 11. By faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad by whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I have confidence in you all and you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. To some extent, not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Hey, Missio. Uh, I'm Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't know that, uh, welcome. So excited to worship with you. Want to start this time in the text with a, a question. And it's kind of an ambiguous question, but it'll make sense as we unfold it and walk through. And this question is this. What is your point of view? And I know that's a little ambiguous, and so maybe a, a different way of thinking about it is when you see a situation, hear stories, read the news, or even read your Bible, what kind of questions do you ask? What angle of approach do you take? What is your point of view? What is your perspective? How do you view the world around you? Now, if you spend any time like in academic settings, like that's a very popular question. If you were to take a Bible class in seminary, one of, the whole, one of the primary things that you would do is understand what point of view you have when reading the Bible. And so you'd unpack how you read the Bible through the lens of modern 21st century Americans. Like that's kind of unavoidable. That's the world we know, the culture we live in, the air we breathe is this world. And so we bring that in when we read the text. And so that's like, if you were to study the Bible, you would ask that question. I think sometimes when we talk about politics, we ask that question. Like, it's hard for us to engage in conversations in a way that isn't skewed by a partisan point of view in a conversation. That's like a concern that we have. But we also have points of views kind of like in more personal moments of our life. I remember um, this moment in high school. We were, I was like in a car, I was driving with some friends, and we were listening to emo music because that was my primary genre of choice, if you can't tell, uh, from high school. And there was a lyric uh, that came across that was like, this is the lyric, uh, quote, I'm the guy that dies at the beginning of the movie. I'm the one who never makes it out of the cave. And I remember, if you know the song, please, please put it in the comments. But I remember being in the car driving, and somebody in the backseat heard the lyric, and he was like, that, that's me. That's my life. And I think he had just been dumped. And so it was like his point of view of his own life was that he was a sad and insignificant character in the story of the universe that was unfolding. 
And as is true of him or as is true of when we read the Bible or when we have political conversations, we all have a point of view, a way of looking at the world, a set of questions that we ask about circumstances, situations, texts that we're reading, people we interact with and experiences that we have. And that point of view, it shapes how we think and how we engage and how we interact with the world around us. So if you believe, like my high school friend did, that you are a sad and insignificant character in your own story, then it will shape how you engage that story, how you interact with that story, how you live that story. If you see the world through a very specifically partisan lens, that will speak to and shape the way that you engage the world around you. You will engage it out of that partisan point of view. And this conversation of what point of view do we have? What do we bring to the text? What do we bring to the world around us? Well, that is one of the chief concerns of the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians. He is interested in what point of view the church at Corinth has. How do they see their circumstances? How do they understand the world around them? What story do they live out of? What point of view do they have? And it, this conversation runs throughout the whole book of 2 Corinthians. And Paul is deeply interested, deeply concerned, devoted to this task of helping the church see from the point of view of the gospel. Or to say it maybe more simply, to see from the point of view as Christians, to see the world as Christians. And for Paul, that means it's a fundamentally different imagination, a fundamentally different orientation about the world, how you see it, how you engage it, how you think about it, how you interact, that we have been given some story that changes how we see the world, that changes how we see the world from how Rome sees the world or how uh, religious cultures around us see the world, how Greece sees the world, how America sees the world. We have a Christian point of view. And Paul wants this church to see from that point of view. And so we saw that in chapter 1, that Paul is coming out of some difficult circumstances in his own life, learning how to see those circumstances from the point of view of the story of the resurrection and crucifixion. And he's trying to give that to the, the church at Corinth, to see their own world, their own circumstances through that same story, to have that point of view. So he wants to see it through the cross, through the resurrection. And at the same time, in chapter 1 and now in chapter 2, as Paul is helping us see from the point of view of the resurrection, he's also trying to challenge us to see from the point of view of the community, not the individual. To see from the point of view of the church, not simply the point of view of the autonomous individual who attends church. And we see this if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you begin to see how Paul does this. Right in this section, it kind of starts like he's going to deal with some family business. He's like, hey, if somebody's grieved you, and I want to get specific about who's grieved you, like, here's how you do it. Then he talks about forgiveness. He talks about reaffirming love. And, and we don't know all the details of this moment. It's kind of like you had to be inside the story of Corinth to know who is Paul talking about. Is he talking about somebody from 1 Corinthians? Is he talking about somebody who's criticized him? We don't know. But watch what Paul does when talking about forgiveness. In verse 5, he says, this person has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Then in verse 6, he says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Verse 7, he says, you, talking to the collective, ought to forgive. Verse 8, you, talking to the collective, that should therefore affirm your love. Verse 10, anyone you collectively forgive 
I also forgive. And that happens also in chapter 1. If you remember earlier when Paul was talking about comfort and suffering, he says this, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Now, what is fascinating about what Paul is doing and the language that he is using is that Paul sees a link or a connection or a collectivity to the church that would engage and shape all of the practices of the church, even under the point of forgiveness. That this practice that I often think of as being one-to-one or isolated or individual, Paul's like, this is a communal engagement. Now, I think what Paul is saying in this moment is actually really hard for us to conceive of, to even make sense of. Because today, our point of view is first and primarily individualistic and autonomous. Meaning the questions that we ask are individual. How do I see this situation? What does this mean for me? How does this impact me? We can see this in all sorts of places around us, but one of the easiest ways to see this kind of individualism is even how we approach our faith in reading our Bible. As we read the Bible, we often ask the question, what does it say for me? Now, I think that's beautiful. I think that's interesting. It leads to amazing things in our own life. But what is interesting about that approach to studying the Bible is that almost none of it was written to an individual. And almost none of it was intended to be read by individuals. It was written to communities and read by communities. And so if we approach the Bible through the lens of what does it mean for me, if nothing else, sets us up for some interesting interpretation difficulty. And if you think about things that the Bible is talking about, when we see it in a personal lens, we might start to change how we interpret it. As opposed to if we started to ask the question, what does it look like for this to be read as a community? What if Jesus' words of love your enemies was not actually only intended for individuals, but it was actually intended for communities? It's not hard to see how that might begin to change the way we understand it. But that's what we do. We approach it individually. But we also approach things from an autonomous point of view. And I think that one is a little harder to identify because it is so normal. But in the middle of COVID-19, well, we actually get to see what it looks like when people live autonomously, when we think of our lives as disconnected from others. Right in the early moments of COVID-19, grocery stores ran out of food and paper products because we bought more than we needed and other people couldn't have any. And so all of a sudden, this like very simple moment reveals that our lives are not as isolated as we often think that they are. The decisions that we made, the realities that we live, the things we do impact those around us. We often see from the point of view of autonomous individuals, but Paul wants the church to see from the point of view of an interconnected community. He wants us to ask a different set of questions about the world around us. How do we and others see this? What does this mean for us and others? How does this impact us and others? Paul will say this really beautifully in Romans 12, verse 5, saying this, For just as each of us, has one body with many members. And these members do not all have the same function, 
So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. See, in Christ, we are linked together and formed into one body. The joy, the experiences, the health, the pain of the one, according to Paul, are realities for the whole. My decisions impact the whole. My actions impact the whole. My health impacts the health of the whole. And in this moment, in 2 Corinthians, we see this playing out through the practice of forgiveness. Paul urges the collective, the body, to forgive the one. And normally forgiveness feels so one-to-one, but I think as we start to think through practically why Paul would say that this is a collective or communal exercise, it actually makes sense because one-to-one forgiveness doesn't lead to restoration. It doesn't lead to a whole body. You need a whole body involved in forgiveness for it to lead to whole health. You've actually probably seen this or even experienced it in your own life. If you have a friend who has wronged a group, who's done something that's hurt multiple people in a group, you or someone else might forgive them. But that doesn't mean that they're welcomed back into the group. It doesn't mean that the love of the community is reaffirmed for them just means that one person has forgiven them. And that's powerful and that's beautiful, but there is still so much more to be done for a person not to be isolated and excommunicated. Now that leads to like messy territory in terms of forgiveness. Like what if I'm ready to forgive someone that's hurt the group, but not everyone is. The trauma or the hurt or the wounds have not yet been dealt with, and they are still deep and true. And I think that's actually what makes this moment so interesting and why Paul uses the language that he does. Instead of saying, I command you as a collective to forgive, Paul says, ought and urge. Now, that's interesting because Paul in other moments has no problem demanding that the church does things. He has no problem saying this is essential. And even later in this text, just like a few verses down, He'll say, I wrote to you to see if you were being obedient. And so there's at one level, Paul understands forgiveness and collective forgiveness to be a conversation about obedience. And yet at the other hand, he's allowing, because it is collective, for it to be a process that is messy and difficult. And so he says, you ought, and I urge you. The gospel ought get lived out in this way. I urge you to live aligned with the gospel in terms of forgiveness and reconciliation That is what it means to be obedient, but it is obviously messy and difficult. I ought and urge. Now then, after Paul says that, he does this thing, which is actually really amazing. He models it. So he says, if anyone that you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven... If there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. So he's like, community forgiveness has to be collective. We are interconnected. We are linked together. And so forgiveness has to be a thing that flows out of our communal connection. And then he's like, and I will show you how it happens. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. And he says, I did this for your sake because we are linked together. This is such an amazing thing if we just think about what that means. 
Because forgiveness or refusing forgiveness is often an easy way for us to hold on to control, to hold on to power, to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves safe from the others. But in forgiving, when Paul does, through the extension of forgiveness of others, Paul gives to the community all of that power, all of that control, all of that trust. And he is vulnerable with the church to say that when you forgive, I will also extend forgiveness. That is such a vulnerable place to place yourself, and yet it is also amazingly liberating because it means that Paul is not responsible for carrying the weight of forgiveness alone. Instead, it is dispersed just like his control throughout the community. So you lose something. You lose the ability to hoard and force and control and coerce and stay over someone. But in dispersing that power, you also disperse the weight of having to solve it on your own. I forgave for your sake. What we see in this moment is a picture of what it means to be the church. When Paul talks about community, he talks about this point of view that is linked and interconnected. The reason he's so concerned with telling the church at Corinth this is because it is essential to what it means to be the church in that city and in that place and in that moment. A community who sees and acts as linked people, not isolated individuals. A people who take their connection to one another in Christ so seriously that they would give power over to one another, even in their hurts. And I think that's why Paul adds right at the end of this section, this like super weird line where he says in verse 11, this is so that the Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of their schemes. When we forget that we are linked together through Jesus, Paul says you have been outwitted. So when you don't recognize that Christ died to reconcile us together, to make us one body in him, you have been outwitted. So in division and disunity, when a refusal to forgive, a refusal to be vulnerable with the community, when that defines the church, he's like, you've been outwitted. When we don't practice trust with one another, we've been tricked, we've been duped. When our churches are more divided by partisanship, by point of views that are specific to the, the agendas and kingdoms of this world, you have been outwitted. You have been tricked. And when you have been outwitted by the enemy, you are operating as an unknown agent of the enemy. You are supplanting and standing in the way of the kingdom of Jesus. You have been outwitted. There's no easier moment to see this than, than in the one that we live about to roll into a presidential election and the church will be divided. If unemployment goes up, I think it's rosy right now, but often when we see long periods of unemployment, division, dissonance, tension goes up. And those things that link us together in Jesus, well, in this moment, they're going to be tested and tried. And if we allow those things, to divide, to, to make us forget that we are linked and connected, if we forget our connected point of view, well, then we will have been outwitted. 
and will have given up the purpose of the church to rival kingdoms and rival enemies. So how do we stay from being unwitted? Well, that's what Paul is asking us. We need to see through a gospel point of view, an interconnected communal point of view. To help us do this this week, Missio, begin to ask yourselves communal questions, interconnected questions, as opposed to individualistic and autonomous questions. As you read the Bible, would you ask yourself, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for others? What does it mean for those who heard it the first time? When Paul wrote this letter, it was read to the church at Corinth. You don't have to know all the details. Just what would it be like for this to be read to a community? Would you ask yourself, how does this impact us and others? If you experience something at work, if you experience something in the world, if you go to the grocery store, as you begin to have these experiences and these interactions, how does this impact us and others? Not simply, how does it impact me? And what could it look like for us? The beautiful thing about forgiveness being communal or any of the practices of the church being practices of the church, meaning the people, is that you do not carry the weight alone. So what does it look like for us to be the church in the city? What could that possibly mean? What does it look like for us to extend forgiveness? What does it look like for us to be agents of reconciliation? What does it look like for us to be people who tell the story of Jesus? What if we imagined evangelism not as individuals, but as a community? How might that change how we begin to interact with the world around us? This week, begin to ask yourself those questions to see as the church. And then if you can, Missio, if you have the elements of communion near you, even this meal, it's funny, even this meal, if we think about the way that we often take it, we take it as individuals, but it was given as a meal to a community. And so the first instantiation of this meal was given to a people to eat together. And so today, maybe you're alone at your apartment or you're with your family. As you take that meal, would you ask those communal questions? What does this mean for us? What does it mean for us to be a people of a table that is set for others? That meal that you participate in, it reminds us that in Christ, we have been reconciled together as a people, that the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down. So Missio, how does that impact us. And if we took that seriously, what could this table practice look like here and now? Let's pray. Jesus, more than anything else, through your Spirit, help us see the world through your story. As a people of rescue, as a people of the cross and resurrection, and as a people who have been reconciled together, linked in you, stronger than blood or partisanship, in a way that is, that is so unique, that overcomes our, our tendency to individualism and autonomy. God, help us see from that point of view, so that we might practice from that point of view. God, as we do that this week, would you help us bear witness to what you're doing, to not be outwitted by false and rival images, but as we practice communally, 
would it start to tell the story of you that we're trying to see out of? So we pray these things in your name. Amen.